Hi, welcome to Eat, Sleep, and Don't Die, your weekly dose of nightmares and monsters, otherwise known as paranormal activity and true crime stories. Join me today as we talk about the kidnapping of J.C. Lee Duggard and Myrtle's Plantation. Welcome to episode four. Thanks for joining me on this Monday. I hope you all had a great weekend. Um, I actually have a personal story for you guys. Um, If you follow our Facebook fan group or the Instagram page for the podcast, you've probably seen the picture that I posted and I told you guys I'd tell you the story about it. Um, If you haven't, go on to the Facebook group or the Instagram and check out the picture. So it started on Saturday. I was sitting on my couch just crocheting. It's what I typically do on the weekends. Um, My husband was at work, so I was at home alone in the apartment. And all of a sudden, the buzzer rings, which we have controlled entry in the apartment building. So you can't get into the building unless you have a key or you're buzzed in. So the buzzer goes off, and normally it's a delivery, but neither of us were expecting a package. So I get up, I go look out the window to see if I could see something, and I don't see anybody. But then I hear the door open and somebody's coming in and I can hear them coming up the stairs. And so I kind of run over to my front door and I look out the peephole and I see a kid, like a teenager wearing a green t-shirt. And he's got these like black glasses on. And so he just opens the neighbor across the hall's door. And first of all, who just leaves their door open? I know we have controlled at uh entry into the apartment complex but i still don't trust my neighbors to leave my door open so anyways he opens the door and she must have been sitting in her living room because then he goes oh sorry and then closes the door so at this point i'm like how do you just walk into a random person's apartment you know what are you even doing in this apartment but anyway so he stands outside her door like looking at the numbers on her door for five minutes I kid you not and now I'm staring at him through my peephole so I can see the back of his head you know and I'm standing there trying to be as quiet as I can I shut the lights off so that just in case he turns and looks in my apartment you know he can't reverse see through the peephole I don't know if that's a possible thing but I was worried about it so I shut the lights I'm looking at him I decide to take the picture and he goes into this white bag he has and he grabs something to drink he takes a sip of it he puts it back in his bag and he's still standing there staring at the door and then all of a sudden i hear him say it's me seth but nobody asked him who it was so what the hell like who is he talking to you know and so another like two minutes goes by after he says his name And then he finally just leaves. Like, nobody says, hey, can you get out of the hallway? Nobody comes in. Nobody, like this seven, eight minute window, nobody walks through the hallway. Nobody comes in and out of their apartment. And so he just leaves. He gets on a bike and he rides away. And I just found it super creepy, super weird. And the whole time I'm like, who are you? How did you get through that? controlled entry door if you don't have a key and you buzzed my apartment like who buzzed you in to let you in and 
why did you why did you buzz my apartment you know and i tried you can sort of hear other people's apartment buzzers especially on the same floor if they go off because they're that loud and the walls are that thin in this apartment complex and it was just super weird because i didn't hear anybody else's buzzers go off so it's not like he just hit all the buzzers and just took a guess on somebody opening it for him but that's the closest i've ever come to like a home invasion type story because i definitely felt like my space was invaded by this weird guy walking into the apartment complex you know and it was just super weird and that's kind of how my weekend went if you want to see the picture you can check it out on the Instagram or Facebook page, as I said earlier. Um, also, I want you to check out the podcast Inspire Together by Robert Flynn. I did an interview with him on Friday, and that was released Friday night. So if you want to head on over there, he's on all the same major platforms that I am. So you can just type in Inspire Together, and it will come up. And the podcast is definitely an inspiring podcast i'm actually good friends with rob um we went to high school together and i've known him for many years he's a great guy and he talks about how to get you to inspire yourself and he talks about real life issues real struggles that he's had and so i had an interview with him on friday and we talked about struggles that i've had in life and moving past them and how I got through them and I talked a little bit about this podcast on it and so I think you guys should definitely listen to it definitely listen to his podcast if that's something you're into um, he will also be coming on this podcast in a few weeks so look out for that episode when it comes out um, so let's get started on these stories shall we So our next story is about the abduction and captivity of J.C. Lee Duggard. And I do want to give you guys a trigger warning. Um, this story is about a child abduction and sexual abuse of a minor. So if that is something that triggers you, please, by all means, skip ahead. I do not want you to feel any type of sadness or if it brings up memories in your past, I don't want to do that. So please, please Skip ahead if you can't handle this, um, but I'm going to get started now. So the Duggard family moved in September of 1990 from Arcadia, California to a rural town called Myers. They thought that this would be a safer community to raise their family in. And on June 10th, 1991, when JC was 11 years old, she left her house to walk up the hill to her bus stop. On her walk, a gray car approached her and she figured she she figured that they would be asking her for directions, but instead the man in the driver's seat shocked her unconscious with a stun gun and he th and his wife threw him threw JC in the car. Um the man's name was Philip Garrido and his wife's name was Nancy. And Nancy held down JC in the car as they traveled 3 hours away to their home in Antioch. Antosh which was 120 miles away. And during this three hour journey, JC drifted in and out of consciousness. And all the while she was pleading with her captors that her parents could not afford a ransom if that's 
like if that's what they were kidnapping her for. But what the Garritos were after was actually much more sinister than just kidnapping for a monetary reward. Um, JC's stepfather, Carl, had witnessed the abduction from their home because he could see up the hill to the bus stop. And he attempted to chase the car while, while riding on a bike, but he couldn't because the car's obviously faster. He saw two people in a mid-sized gray car, possibly a Mercury Monarch, that made a U-turn at, a, at the bus stop, and a woman forced JC into the car. A few classmates also witnessed the same scenario. Although Carl and JC's biological father were the initial suspects, they were cleared of suspicion after interviews and several polygraph tests. So a little background on JC's biological father and the reason he was suspected was that he actually did not play any part in her upbringing. Um, he actually did not even know that she existed until this happened. So um, they thought that he found out he had a kid and was trying to kidnap her because he wanted her, you know, something like that. Um, but they were both cleared after they had their interrogations and their polygraph tests and, and whatnot, you know. Um, so when the Garritos arrived at their home, JC's clothes had been removed and Philip covered her with a blanket, which also covered her head and brought her into the backyard where he had multiple sheds and storage units. He placed her in a tiny one that he had already soundproofed. And Garrido forced JC to shower with him immediately after arriving at the house, and this was the first time that she had ever seen a naked man. She was 11. Um, he then proceeded to rape her. Oh, a week later, he then proceeded to rape her for the first time, and he left her naked in the tiny structure. He bolted it shut and told her that his Dobermans were outside and they were trained to attack her if she tried to escape. Um, he kept her handcuffed during that first week or so of her captivity, and her only contact with people was with Philip Garrido himself. So when he would visit her, he would sometimes bring her fast food or milkshakes, and then he would just talk to her. And in the room that she was kept, she had a bucket for a toilet. And at one point, she was even provided a TV. But she couldn't watch the news because they didn't want her to see the public search for her because it was still so close to the abduction time. And it was uh, like a manhunt in California looking for her. And based on JC's memory, about a month and a half after her abduction... Uh, Philip moved her into a bigger room next to where she was first kept. And in this room, she was handcuffed to a bed. Um, Philip told JC that demon angels had allowed him to take her because she would help him with his sexual problems that society ignored. He abused methamphetamines, and when he did, he would force her to dress up and put makeup on and then they would cut out pornographic images out of nude magazines. And he tried to make her hear the voices that he would hear, claiming that he was a chosen servant of God. So he apparently heard voices in the walls, so he tried to make her hear them. But of course, she didn't. Um, his meth binges would often end with him crying and apologizing to JC, followed up by threats to sell her to people who would keep her in cages. 
About seven months into her captivity, Philip introduced his wife, Nancy, to JC, and it was kind of like a sick introduction of your girlfriend to your kids for the first time, because Nancy brought JC a stuffed animal and chocolate milk and then followed it up with a tearful apology for everything that they were doing to her. Um, but Nancy actually, uh, Nancy was actually very jealous of JC and she blamed her for the current situation that she was in. And at the time, JC said that she felt she needed Nancy's approval, but in retrospect, she realized that she was just manipulated by her because she had this seemingly motherly figure about her. Um, and JC has described Nancy as evil and twisted because even when Philip returned to prison for failing a drug test, Nancy then took his place as her jailer. Um, the Garritos gave JC two kittens on separate occasions, and then the kittens would later mysteriously disappear. So they would give it to her, and then either they would take it away from her and release them into, like, out into the world, or they would kill them. Who knows? Um, but they actually found out that JC was writing about the kittens in a journal. And then she would sign her real name on the entries. So they made her rip those entries out. And she was not allowed to use or say her real name until she was uh, rescued years, years later. Um, also about seven months into her captivity, Philip allowed her to roam around her room without handcuffs for short periods of time. And she was still kept in a bolted shut room though. So she wasn't allowed out of the room. Um, about three years after, about three years after her abduction on April 3rd, 1994, which was actually an Easter Sunday, they brought JC a home-cooked meal for the first time because up until that point, it had always been fast food. Um, and they told her that they believed that she was pregnant and JC was 13 at the time and around four and a half months pregnant. Uh, she learned about how sex leads to pregnancy from watching the TV. And she also learned about childbirth by watching certain programs to prepare her for her first child. On August 18th, 1994, JC gave birth to a baby girl. And again, on November 13th, 1997, she gave birth to a second daughter at the age of 17. JC tried to raise her daughters based on what she saw on the TV. Because remember, she was abducted at 11. So there's not much that you know about raising children at 11. Um, but she tried to learn from the TV how to raise her children. And then she also tried to protect them from Philip. At some point during her captivity, a neighbor kid supposedly says he met JC through the fence and she identified herself as JC but she said that she lived in the house and she wasn't a visitor so he didn't know anything so he just was like oh there's a neighbor girl in the yard you know whatever I also don't know how accurate that is because they did not allow her to roam around for years so for her to be a child and him to have seen her we don't I don't really know if I'd buy that um but anyway, Garrido apparently quickly took her indoors and he built an eight foot tall fence shortly after this 
interaction happened. He also placed a tent in the yard for JC, and for the first time, she was allowed to walk around freely. So it wasn't until after this happened that they erected this huge fence to shield her from the outside world. And then they gave her a tent and said she could kind of roam around the yard. Um, But she coped with her captivity by planting flowers and homeschooling her daughters. And Philip informed JC that in order to make Nancy happy, that JC and the kids were to address her as their mother and that JC was to tell the girls and teach them that she was their older sister and not their mother. When JC and the girls were finally able to come in contact with other people, they had to keep this charade up that Nancy was their mother and JC was the oldest of three girls. Um, JC was also so brainwashed that Philip owned Philip owned a print shop in which she was the graphic artist. Um, she even had access to a business phone and an email account. And a customer even says that he met and spoke with her on the phone and she did excellent work. And another customer said that he had no idea of her abduction or true identity because she never hinted at it when they talked. So she was so brainwashed that she had the access to call 911 and say that she was abducted or send an email to any one of her customers and she didn't. Um, Witnesses claimed to have seen JC in the house or even answering the front door and talking to someone but never sensed that there was an issue. And the girls were also often seen playing in the yard or as passengers in Garrido's car. So in 2009, police had searched the Garrido home and saw no presence of JC or the girls, and they were being held, but they didn't know that they were being held in a second secluded backyard that was hidden by trees and a tarp. So I guess their backyard was really deep, and it was heavily wooded where it looked like the um, property line ended. So this was also, that second backyard was also where they kept the car that they used to kidnap JC in the first place. So that that gray mercury that the stepfather saw was kept in that back, um, back hidden backyard. Um, there were some missed opportunities for JC's rescue through the years. Um, police failed to connect that Garrido had kidnapped and raped another girl where JC was kidnapped before the kidnapping happened. Um, and he actually served time for that and was on parole, federal parole, for those charges. In 1992, a man reported seeing JC at a gas station that was two miles from Garrido's home, and he described a yellow van. And when the police arrived, the van and the girl and Garrido were gone. But later, when JC was released, police recovered the yellow van, and it turned out that it was JC at that gas station back in 1992. And because the police never followed up, because when they got there, there was no van, there was no girl, there was no Garrido, um, that was another missed opportunity for them to follow up with that. In 2002, The fire department responded to a shoulder injury of a juvenile that occurred in a swimming pool. 
and this was never relayed to the parole officer that a miner or a pool were at the Garrido residence. So the fire department should have, um, they did what, well, the fire department did what they were there to do. They were there to help this young girl with whatever injury she had from the pool, but they didn't know, and you can't expect a fire department to know that somebody is on federal parole and not supposed to have young girls or young children in general in their house. So you don't know to report that. But that was something that the parole officers should have known from their monthly checks. So that was another missed opportunity for them. Um, in 2006, a neighbor called 911 to report tents in Garrido's yard with people living in them. And he also said that Garrido was psychotic with a sexual addiction. So a deputy sheriff spoke with Philip at the front of his house for about 30 minutes and then he left. He never inspected the property, but he told Garrido that it was a code violation to have people living in tents in your yard. Um, but he never inspected the property. So in 2009, after, um, after JC was found, the, sheriff at, the sheriff's department actually issued an apology for not following up on that complaint. Because had they gone into the backyard, they would have found JC and the girls. Um, and the last one I kind of figured was in November of 2009, the Office of Inspector General issued a report of their wrongdoings. First, by labeling Garrido as a low-level supervision parolee and even detailing that a parole agent encountered a young girl in the home which Philip said was his brother's daughter, to which the agent didn't follow up with. But it was later found out that after a call to Garrido's brother, it verified that his brother didn't have any children. So that initial parole officer should have flagged the fact that there was a girl in the home to begin with. Um, so... Her rescue began in August of 2009. Philip left a letter with the FBI in San Francisco detailing his supposed cure for criminal sexual behaviors and how they could learn from him. And then he took JC's daughters with him to the University of California police office to request to hold a special event on campus. And he spoke with special, he spoke with special events manager Lisa Campbell who thought that he was a bit erratic and she also felt that the girls were sullen and submissive in nature and she told him to come back the next day for a meeting at 2 p.m. so when he when he agreed to that he left her his name and a contact information so she passed that on to officer Allie Jacobs who then ran a background check and discovered Garrido's record as a registered sex offender and he was on parole for kidnapping and rape. So she sat in on the meeting the next day and described the girls as pale, likely not seeing the sun very often. Um, Officer Jacobs saw multiple parole violations in that meeting and she thought that they were a pretty good basis for arresting him 
so she left a detailed report with his parole officer. Now, I don't know what kind of cop she was that she couldn't just arrest him on the spot, um, which I think that's what she should have done, but I don't know how that all works. I don't know if she was just a university cop where she only deals with that and she has to pass it on to, um, like, city police. So I'm not 100% sure. But she left a detailed report with his parole officer. So after hearing Officer Jacob's report, two parole agents went to Garrido's house, arrested him, and searched his home, but they only found his wife and elderly mother in the home. Um, while en route to the police station, Garrido said that the girls were daughters of relatives and that he had permission from their parents to take them to the college with him. But months before, um, the police, uh, the parole officers had barred him from having any association with minors, and he was also not allowed to go more than a 25-mile radius from his home, which the college was outside that radius by 15 miles because it was 40 miles away from his house. He was only allowed to travel outside this radius with approval from his parole officer beforehand. Um, so that was a violation of his parole as well. But nothing was done about this, and he was ordered to report the next day to follow up with the concern about the concerns with the two little girls. Um, so Philip arrived on August 26th with his wife Nancy, the two girls, and JC. Um, and she was going by the name Alyssa. So they separated JC and the two girls from Nancy and Philip to try and obtain their real identities. So at first, JC maintained her false identity of being this Alyssa, and she told them that she was a battered wife from Minnesota and that the girls were her daughters and she was trying to escape her abusive husband. Um, she, she said that she knew Philip was a convicted sex offender, but that he was a changed man, a great person, and really good with kids. When pressed for details to confirm her identity, she got very agitated and very defensive. Um, the parole officers called the Concord police. When the police sergeant arrived, JC finally identified herself as JC Lee Duggard. Um, she was showing, showing signs of Stockholm Syndrome, even though in an interview in 2016 with Diane Sawyer of ABC News, she said that describing herself as having Stockholm was actually degrading to her. Um, she felt that she was not in love with Garrido and didn't want to protect him. What she was doing was adapting to her situation and overcoming her circumstances. And she did what she had to do in order to survive, stating, this is a quote from it, as a way to survive and hoping to end abuse, Many, vic many victims are forced to sympathize with their captors. Um, so she found it very offensive for people to say that she had Stockholm Syndrome, being that she kept up the front of this Alyssa character that she had to be. What she felt was she had to do that in order to survive. She felt if she uh, lashed out at him or something like that and they had to go back to the house and he didn't get charged that she would be paying the price later on or worse her children would pay the price um, so Garrido and his wife were pl were placed under arrest 
and on August 28, 2009, Philip and Nancy pleaded not guilty to charges, including kidnapping, rape, and false imprisonment. In February of 2011, Nancy's attorney said that they both made full confessions, and in early April 2011, they were supposed to plead guilty, but instead they both chose to plead not guilty. But then again, on April 28, 2011, they pleaded guilty to kidnapping and rape by force. Um, Philip was sentenced to 431 years to life in prison, and Nancy received 36 years to life. Both of them will be eligible for parole in August of 2034. Um, hopefully, with Garrido's past, he does not get paroled because clearly he did it once, got paroled, and did it again even worse. Um, so hopefully he does not, and I hope Nancy doesn't either because this is just a terrible story to begin with. Um, but various family members stated that JC and her daughters were healthy and the girls behaved just like normal kids would. Um, JC's stepdad Carl said that JC had developed an emotional bond to Garrido and that the daughters even cried when learning of their father's arrest. Um, JC's aunt said that the girls are clever, articulate, and very curious. Um, to read JC's story as told by her, she has a book out. It's called A Stolen Life, A Memoir. Um, you can get it on Kindle. You can get it on the Nook tablets. You can get it paperback and I believe a hardcovered version. Um, so you can definitely get that and read the account. Uh, she goes into a lot more detail about her captivity that I just don't have a heart to even say. Um, she talks about multiple times being raped, the way that they abused her mentally and physically. Um, she talks about the outings that they would bring her on, and it's just, it's very hard to, um, to read. I read the book, I cried pretty much the whole time. It's a very, very emotional book. Um, and then to read about her life since this has all happened, since she was freed from her captivity. She has another book called Freedom, My Book of Firsts, and this focuses on her recovery and reintegration into the world. Um, and then you can also try and look up her two interviews that she had with Diane Sawyer. The first one was released right before her first book came out, and then the second interview was released right before her second book came out. So, um, in the first one, she talks about her abuse, obviously, and in the second interview, she'll talk about her recovery since and what she's doing and stuff like that. Um, for the privacy of her family, her daughter's names were never released to the public, um, and I believe she refers to them in her book by other names. So, and I, that's a very smart thing to do. So, her kids, one of them is actually my age, so... 26 and the other one is just uh, two three years younger so they're my age and I can't imagine if this story even just me having to know it but then the whole world knows my story I I'm glad that they chose to keep their child her children's names secret um so JC actually also runs a nonprofit called JC so it's J-A-Y capital C 
and it helps facilitate family reunification for trauma victims. Um, it also aims to provide safe, secluded places for victims to recover, and it holds um, caregiver workshops, so people that have to um, care for someone who's gone through traumatic things such as what JC went through. Um, and it also focuses on animal-assisted therapies, which JC herself turned to riding and caring and raising horses to help heal her trauma. Um, and then just to give you guys some resources, um, there is a lot of resources for this type of trauma on the National for Missing and Exploited Children, which includes reporting missing children to the 24-hour hotline, which is 800-THE-LOST. And you can also check out their website for emergency response, reference guides, and checklists for when or if a child goes missing. Um, and that's obviously mostly for what's in the U.S., but that's just a quick little resources guide. You can go there and see things. And um, so another kind of that's a really hard story. Um, I've, I read JC's book years ago, probably when it first came out, and I was obviously much younger than I am now, and it was just such a tough, tough, tough story to read. Um, so I do, if you have the heart to list, to read it, I suggest reading it. I, that book was hard, but I love that book. Um, so that's going to be the end of my story about JC. Um, thank you for listening. We're going to move on to our next story. So our second story is about the Myrtles Plantation. Um, the Myrtles Plantation was a pre-war plantation located in St. Francisville, Louisiana. And when I say it's pre-war, I mean it's pre-American Civil War. Um, it was built in 1796 by General David Bradford, and it was originally called the Laurel Grove. And General Bradford was a successful lawyer and deputy attorney general from Pennsylvania. And he's infamous for his role in the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a tax protest against the government who was taxing, like, whiskey and rum. Um, General Bradford lived in the home many for many years alone until he was pardoned for his role in the Whiskey Rebellion, which then he went up to Pennsylvania and he got his wife and his kids, and he moved them down to the plantation from Pennsylvania. The house is supposedly built on Native American on a Native American burial ground, so we already know that this house is going to be haunted somehow, right? Um, the home sits upon a hill facing the east. It was built in the Creole cottage style, which is seen in many Louisiana plantation houses of the 19th century. Um, the original structure features six bays and three dormers on the roof, and in the 1850s, the house was extended to the south and nearly doubled in size. Um, the stained glass is original and hand-painted, which was patterned after the French cross to ward off evil. I wonder why they wanted to ward off evil or felt like they needed to. It was probably because they built it on an ancient burial ground. Um, but the main feature of the house is the veranda that stretches across the front of the house and the southern end of the house. Uh, the features 
the house features 22 rooms spread over two floors and those rooms include identical ladies and gentlemen's parlors, a formal dining room, a game room, five bedrooms with their own ensuite, bathrooms. Um, interestingly enough about this house was the largest bedroom is the only one that was accessed by the main staircase that was in the entry hall of the house. The other four were separated by a common room and they were accessed by a staircase that was in the rear of the house. Um, so Bradford lived in this house with his kids until he died in 1808. His wife Elizabeth then ran it until 1817 when she turned management over to her son-in-law Clark Woodruff who uh, was married to her daughter Sarah Matilda and Clark was actually Brad one of Bradford's former law students. Um, the Woodruffs had three children. Their names were Africa Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. And in 1823 and 1824, Sarah Matilda, Africa Gale, and James all died of yellow fever, like over those two years. Um, and then Elizabeth Bradford died in 1831. So Clark and Mary Octavia ended up moving to Covington, Louisiana, and in 1834, he sold the plantation, the land, and the slaves to Ruffin Gray Sterling. Um, so Ruffin and his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb, were the owners who did the extensive remodeling and caused the house to double in size. It was also during this time that the name was changed from Laurel Grove to the Myrtles, and that was due to the crepe myrtles that grew around the property. Um, Ruffin Gray died in 1854, leaving the plantation to his wife. So the myrtles survived the American Civil War, and it was only robbed of its expensive furnishings and accessories. Um, in 1865, Mary Cobb hired her son-in-law, William Drew Winter, to help run the place, and he married her daughter, Sarah, and the couple had six children. Um, one died of typhoid at the age of three, and uh, the family fortune was lost in the aftermath of the war as they put most of their resources towards the Confederacy. And as we all know, they lost to the Union. So the Confederacy is the South, the Union is the North. Um, so the Winters were forced to sell their plantation in 1868, but they bought it back two years later. And then in 1871, William Winter was shot and killed on the porch of the house. So Sarah lived there until her death in 1878, and then Mary Cobb Sterling died in 1880, leaving the plantation to her son Stephen, which was Sarah's brother. Um, the plantation was in heavy debt, which forced Stephen to sell the plantation in 1886. The plantation changed hands a few times after this until it was finally bought in 1891 by Harrison Milton Williams. Um, in the early 20th century, the land was divided up uh, by the heirs of Harrison. And in the 1950s, the house was sold to Margaret Munson who began to notice odd things happening and hauntings and stuff. And then it again changed ownership in the 1970s 
when James and Francis Kermeen Myers ran it as a bread and breakfast. A bed and breakfast. Man, I can't speak today. <laughs> um, Francis Myers wrote a book about the Myrtles, naming it as the most haunted house in America. The current owners, John and Tita Moss, continue to open the house for tours and overnight guests. And the house is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's actually a popular tourist attraction due to its association with paranormal activity. Um, the house is apparently home to 12 ghosts, or at least 12 ghosts. Supposedly, there was 10 murders that occurred at the house, although only one is confirmed in the house, and that was William Winter. So William Winter, um, his ghost ap apparently relives his death because his ghost can be staggering into the house, crawls up the steps, and stops on the 17th stair where he supposedly died, according to one legend. There was one legend that said he was shot and had enough energy or whatever to go into the house, go up the stairs, and he died on the 17th step before reaching the top. There's another story where his wife was coming down after hearing the gunshot, and he died in her arms on the 17th step. But the official um, record of where he died was actually on the front porch. So whether it was covered up or I don't know, but that's apparently the ghost that some people see. Um, one of the most well-known ghosts at the Myrtles is Chloe, and she was a slave owned by Clark and Sarah Woodruff. Sorry, Clark and Sarah Woodruff. Um, one story claims that Clark was forcing Chloe to be his mistress, and then um, he kind of gave her up or something like that. Like, he chose that she was getting too old, or he was done with her and went on and moved on to another one, um, or that he was caught by Sarah, and so Sarah backlashed. Um, another story claims that she was listening in on Clark's business dealings and after being caught by Clark or Sarah that they cut off one of her ears and then she was wearing a green turban to cover her missing ear. So supposedly because of that, Chloe baked a cake containing extract of oleander leaves which is extremely poisonous and there are various stories as to why she did this whether it was revenge because they cut off her ear or it was her redeeming herself by trying to play the hero and helping the family after they eat this poisonous cake. Nobody really knows. However, it backfired because only Sarah and her two daughters ate the cake and they all died from poison. Chloe was then hanged by the other slaves and thrown into the Mississippi River to avoid punishment by Clark. Um, historical records do not support this story at all, as the Woodruffs did not own a slave named Chloe. Um, they looked up different variations of the way of spelling Chloe, and it never shows up. And every single other slave that they owned, they had a record of them. So why would they have one that they don't have a record of, you know? So that's the one, one part where they say, you know, that's not true. Um, the second one is Sarah and her daughters were not poisoned. 
Um, she only had two daughters, and although one of them died, Mary Octavia survived into adulthood. So um, it might have been possible that Sarah, Africa, and James died from poisoning because they all died within two years of each other. But it doesn't support this story where it says Sarah and her two daughters ate the cake and died from poisoning. Um, so that's another thing that's not factual about this story. But regardless of how factual the story is, people do claim to see a woman wearing a green turban in time period clothing that haunts the grounds. Um, some of the other ghosts include a ghost of a young Native American woman who supposedly is from the ancient burial ground, which we could have guessed that because you built it on ancient burial grounds. Um, the There's three more uh, that are associated with each other. So it's three civil, three civil war union soldiers who apparently died in the house while ransacking it during the war. Supposedly there's a blood stain in the doorway of the gentleman's parlor that cannot be cleaned and cleaning companies have even tried to, but they can't get their mops to clean it. And they've tried scrubbing it and they've tried different ways to clean it and they just can't. Um, that is a story that's also not, uh, there's no evidence to support it because they don't have a record of three Union soldiers dying in the house or on those grounds. It's not to say that they didn't try to cover it up at some point, but they do see this blood stain that's the size of a person. So that's the story behind it. I don't know where that story originates from, though. Um, the next one is that of a mirror in which Sarah Woodruff and two of her children have their spirits trapped in it. Um, it's customary after death to cover, it was customary at the time to cover up mirrors after people's deaths because it's said that, um, these mirrors could trap their souls in them or their spirits. And apparently this one mirror was overlooked and it was never covered and so it trapped their souls in it. So Sarah and her children can sometimes be seen in this mirror and they'll even see sometimes handprints that are left on the mirror. And it's usually children's handprints. Um, the next is of a young girl who died in 1868 despite treatment from a local voodoo practitioner. Um, she will appear in the room that she died in and has even reportedly practiced voodoo on visitors sleeping in the room. So I didn't get the name of the girl. I tried looking it up, but I couldn't figure it out. Um, but that's another one that's not, it's a, a hit or miss on if it actually happened. So she wasn't murdered in the house, but she died in the house. So it's not technically counted as a murder, but her ghost is seen in the room in which she died. So that's another ghost. Um, one murder that supposedly happened that records also don't support was the death of Louis Sterling, who is the oldest son of the original owner, Ruffin Gray Sterling. And he was said to be stabbed to death in the house due to gambling debts. That is not uh, a fact because they say Louis Sterling died of, I think, yellow fever or something like that. So, um... Who knows if they just put that on the death record because they didn't want anyone to know. 
that he was stabbed to death in the house or that he had gambling debts or whatever the issues were. Who knows? Things were covered up a lot back then. Um, another murder that was on record and also maybe untrue was the death of a caretaker of the house in 1927 from an apparent robbery. Um, there was no story of a caretaker that died. There was no records of the caretaker dying on the property or in the house. However, the only story that's similar to this is the death of Eddie Harrelson, who was the brother of a previous owner, and he was killed during a robbery, but he was in a small house on the property in the back, not in the main house. So this murder in the house was not technically in the main house, but it was on the property. It was on the grounds and it did belong to the owners of the house. So um, they might have just misinterpreted the story along the way because it was a word of mouth story. And so that's kind of how that one's sort of supported. Um, and there's many varying accounts of the deaths on the property. A lot of them seem exaggerated for publicity reasons after that one owner wrote a book about the hauntings that happened there. Um, but who knows what the previous owners hid to avoid police or media attention. Like I said, with the death of Lewis Sterling, maybe Ruffin didn't want people to know that his son had a gambling problem, so he covered it up and he said, no, he died in his bed of yellow fever. Like, who knows what people said back then and who could verify or not verify stories. And, you know, if you had a lot of money, you could just throw money at the medical examiner to say whatever you wanted him to say. So who knows what could have happened. Um, and the next thing is there's a couple pictures that have these supposed ghosts in them and one of them is supposedly the ghost of Chloe um so I'm going to post that and then the other one is of the little girl that died in the house so I'm going to try and post those to the Instagram or the Facebook account so make sure you're following those or you're part of the group so that you can see those pictures when I post them um, and that is it for the story of the Myrtle Plantation in Louisiana. So I hope you guys like that story. All right. Thank you all for listening to my stories. Again, I apologize if the first story was a trigger for anybody. Um, it's just a story that I feel needed to be told, even though she's told her story a bunch of times. Um, but I really wanted to share that guy, share that story with you guys. Um, the second story is one that I literally looked up haunted places in the U.S. and it was one of the number one places that came up. So even though I know a lot of these ghost stories in it were unsupported, um, a lot of people do have a lot of paranormal experiences there. So I wanted to share that with you. Um, I wanted to share more personal stories of that second one, like people who have actually seen them or not, but that's why I'm going to share those pictures with you. And one of them is actually the picture of the ghost of Chloe, and they actually sell that at the Myrtles Plantation as a postcard. So they take that picture and post it as a postcard. So you can actually go there and get that picture yourself, but I'm going to post the picture so that you guys can see it. Um, yeah, so... 
thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I appreciate that you have stayed till episode four. I can't believe it's four episodes already. Um, The next episode will come out next Monday. So I know the first week we had a few episodes come out back to back. um, But now I'm going to start going week to week. We're going to get it every Monday. You're going to get your dose of paranormal and true crime stories true crime stories and I'm really excited to continue sharing these stories with you guys Um, at the end of next month I'll have a few guest episodes so we'll have guests on here so you can hear other people talk not just me (laughs) I know that can be kind of annoying sometimes Um, I also wanted to make sure that you guys know you can listen to Inspire Together by Robert Flynn. There's an episode that's an interview with me. Please listen to it. It's a great episode. You can listen to the podcast itself. It's a very uplifting and inspiring podcast. I listen to it myself every day. Um, and he posts very frequently. It's like at least three, maybe four times a week. So it's definitely a great podcast to wake up and just pop it on, you know, and it's 15-minute episodes very quick. Um, so give him a listen. Uh, yeah, so I think that's all I've got for you guys today, and I can't wait to talk to you guys again next week. If you have any personal stories, please email them to me. Next Monday, I will be releasing the new um, listeners episode where I tell your stories. So make sure you email me your stories, your personal true crime or paranormal stories so I can tell people your stories. Um, also, make sure you follow the podcast on Instagram. It's ESDD Podcast, And then join the Facebook group called ESDD Podcast Fan Group. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful week, a wonderful weekend that'll be coming up at the end of the week. Um, And I'll talk to you guys again on Monday. Thanks for listening.